Welcome to the IWI's May 2011 CFITrainer.net podcast. This podcast follows the IWI ATC in Las Vegas. If you were able to attend, then you know what a valuable event the annual training conference is for your fire investigation career. While we were there, other than seeing great training going on and a lot of networking of your peers, we, as the production team, used the time to work on two new productions for the IAAI. We completed video interviews of participants from around the country for the IAAI informational program that's going to be available online and on DVD. And we also worked on producing an orientation video for people planning on attending the Evidence Collection Technician Practicum. Next year's ATC is in Dover, Delaware. Keep on the lookout for new information about the Dover ATC so you can plan on it for next year. The date for Dover ATC is April 22nd through the 27th, 2012. Last year, we began a series focusing on understanding the potential short and long-term health implications of working at fire scenes. Our first installment, broadcast in April 2010, dealt with acute health problems that can occur at the fire scene. The second installment, broadcast in May 2010, discussed the possible health ramifications of long-term exposure to hazardous substances and conditions present at the fire scene. Both of these podcasts are available to you on the main CFITrainer.net podcast page. In this episode, our roundtable discusses proactive measures you can take to protect and monitor your health throughout your career. Our roundtable is moderated by Robert Shaw, past president of the IAAI and the assistant special agent in charge of the ATF's New Orleans Field Division. Let's go to Bobby and the roundtable participants. Hi, this is Bob Shaw. Uh, with me today is Barry Lindley with DuPont Chemical Emergency Response Solutions, Russ Melton, an attorney with Mirror and Gear, the Catastrophic Loss Unit, and Mike Donahue, uh, Fire Investigation Training Manager at the National Fire Academy. Um, Barry, as, as fire investigators, uh, what are we talking about when we're monitoring? When we're talking about monitoring our, our health, what do we mean by that? Well, we have uh, two different things that we need to consider. We need to uh, consider acute health effects, things that's going to happen immediate, immediately, such as exposure to things like carbon monoxide or hydrogen cyanide, or um, acrolein, or any number of chemicals, and then we have our uh, chronic health effects we have to look at because some of the byproducts from several fires are either uh, carcinogens, mutagens, or other of uh, the nice long-term health effect materials. And so we have to worry about monitoring our health for both of those. Mike, you know, you in your uh, previous job performance, you, you were a fire investigator and you've devoted a lot of time to fire investigator safety. What are, what are some of the health concerns that you found fire investigators face? Uh, this is Mike. So you have to look at all types of hazards, not just those that might pose an exposure risk because focusing just on that might, it might cause a situation to occur where you, you are injured by some other mechanism. Russ, that brings up uh, an interesting point. Um, oftentimes fire investigators get to the scene after suppression's done and they think that a lot of the risks are alleviated. What, what type of preventive measures should fire investigators take when they're doing their origin and cause investigation? Education is number one, followed by communication, followed by communication and communication. But the education is extremely important uh, for the preventative care measures to make an identification of what hazards you are facing 
and then choose the appropriate PPE uh, or, if necessary, the appropriate engineering controls or, if appropriate, the uh, administrative controls. Those are the preventive care measures that you can take. Well, and I guess one of the the things that's kind of not really well understood is the the causal relationship between the health risks and tying it back to the the fire scene. And, and how do we go about doing that? Do we do some type of initial screening prior to beginning that type of assignment, and then continue to monitor health throughout the career? Are there governing documents that spell that out for the fire investigation community? Barry, can you address that one? There are several documents out there. Unfortunately, not all of them will address that. One of the most important documents to address that is when you talk about a hazmat scene is an IAP, and that's your action plan on what you're going to do. And in that IAP, it has a uh, specific plan for every uh, scene, and you need to treat that scene per your plan. And in that, you develop health hazards, safety hazards, how to do monitoring, uh, all the different aspects of being a safe responder at that point. Well, yeah, I think we're, uh, this is Russ again, where we were headed on this. The IAP, uh, you know, has incorporated the HAS, which is very important. And that's a good record to keep because <clears throat> before you get into this business, there's certain certifications you have to have. There's certain medical surveillance uh, programs that would be internally prior to uh, admission to a hazmat scene. And I, I think uh, it's above and beyond the OSHA requirements. I believe the OSHA requirements re uh, require a medical exam uh, every two years. But uh, I think one of the areas for fire investigators to look at is having an annual uh, medical surveillance at a local clinic. But the real question is, what is the extent and magnitude of that uh, medical surveillance or medical exam? And I'm just going to flip that back to Mike and Barry because from two different directions, one from industry and one from fire service, as to what the extent of that uh, medical exam should be prior to entry. Now, this is Mike. I think what we need to do is, is focus on the physical exam and the medical surveillance program needs to be focused around as if you were a member of a HAZMAT team. OSHA, OSHA has some very, very specific standards such as HAZWAP or 29 CFR 1910-120 that outlines for a medical surveillance program for a HAZMAT team member, someone who wears a respirator more than 30 times a year, there's some specific requirements. And it's not just the physical you would have for an administrative position, for example, where you go into a normal physician and you know check your eyesight, check your hearing. I mean, these these individuals might be working in scenes, as Barry and others have, have mentioned uh, a while ago, uh, where hazardous chemicals are present, such as formaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide. And certainly, you'd want your medical screening to be such that those types of hazards and those risks are taken into account. So, for example, some diagnostic, maybe some pre-diagnostic screening for certain types of cancer, such as bladder cancer heavy metals exposure, there's a, a significant blood profiles to make sure that whether it's, whether it's exposure to something such as lead or something else that might be in these environments, it really, really is a rigorous program and it starts at the top of the organization. They have to have a commitment and the understanding that the, the risks and hazards that fire investigators might be, might be facing at a scene are real. And based on that, they've developed a program that includes standard operating procedures, strict policies, 
in, in, in issuance of personal protective equipment, medical mandatory medical surveillance that is, and I agree, annually has to be done. You have to establish that baseline exam and have it done every single year so that if someone is exposed to something and goes for a follow-up, they have something to go back and compare it to to see whether or not there is or isn't a problem. What type of PPE can investigators use on the scene? Should they be issued? And, and what kind of uh, routine monitoring equipment do they have to help them further identify the risks that may not be identified in the general assessment? This is Mike Donahue. I'll take a stab at that. Um, it all starts out with, a, with an assessment of the hazards in their workplace, which is not their office, it's not the fire station, it's not the police station, it's the fire scene. And there's enough data out there from all the studies that have been done. We obviously can't characterize every single compound that might be at a scene, but we certainly know when something burns, there's going to be a common set of chemicals or off-gases that are produced. So based on that, we can then take that data and say, okay, if I'm an investigator going to work in this environment for any given period of time, I might be exposed to this list of common hazards. Based on an analysis of the common hazards, the organization goes back and says, okay, now that I know this person might be exposed to these hazards, what's the proper personal protective equipment that provides an adequate minimum baseline level of protection? You start with a basic head-to-toe ensemble of safety equipment at any scene. Regardless, it starts from head protection, eye protection, gloves, foot protection, steel toes, steel shank, uh, shank shoes, boots, everything. And then based on that, you determine the appropriate level of respiratory protection. Most folks today seem to opt for either the half-face air purifying respirator or the full-face air purifying respirator. But these are negative pressure devices and not positive pressure devices such as self-contained breathing apparatus. So if you were going to an immediately dangerous to life and health environment, Obviously, those devices could not be used. That determination is, again, based on an assessment at the scene at the time by the investigator, or if they're working with a fire department that might have a safety officer assigned who might be doing some monitoring at the scene, they can help make that determination. Because if the agency has not issued, trained, and certified, and fit tested, for example, that individual on the various types of personal, or I should say respiratory protection, then even though the scene might require a positive pressure device, obviously they would not be able to use it because they have not been trained and certified and equipped to do so. Barry, what, what type of monitoring equipment would you recommend investigators use? And, I, and I'm sure there's a wide range of complexities, but, but are there any easy-to-use monitoring equipments that are kind of like a must-have for fire investigators? There's some uh, good, quick monitoring devices out there. Uh, of course, a, a standard four-gas monitor with explosibility, oxygen, carbon monoxide, and then maybe another fourth toxic of some type is a good way to get uh, some IDLH conditions around oxygen and carbon monoxide levels. Then you can use a photoionization detector, uh, or abbreviated PID, which is a very general um, instrument for organics, but it will pick up most of the toxic, so you can use it as a toxic uh, sensor in a quick manner. Uh, Bobby, this is Russ again. One of the issues I look at most frequently in our business is that when you have a large commercial loss, these resources are readily available. But it's when you're doing a residential loss there may be only one or two people, the CFI and the causation engineer, and perhaps a third might be the adjuster on the case or the handler. 
as a consequence, it's, uh, that education comes back again because you don't have all the resources. As a consequence, uh, I like the idea of a checklist. And, of course, a checklist should really be is the physical hazards have to be determined before you go in. And you have to have, uh, I'd say at a minimum, level A, level B, to make an analysis to make a determination as to what the chemical hazards are. And then from there, you can make a determination of how the actual uh, CNO is going to be conducted. Well, and, and as you do this this site assessment or the safety checklist, is it is it recommended that you you document these known hazards and known exposures, and then retain that information uh, either in your your file or something else? <laughs> uh, this is Russ. Yes, so all those questions because it's not uh, you do have the potential for contaminants outside the perimeter, which might be a third-party action. You have the potential, obviously, where it occurred, the site itself, the on-site contamination, and the people that might be exposed to that would obviously be the workers, the uh, investigators, the uh, engineers, and any one of them at a later date may bring a claim for exposure. And if you do not have those records, uh, you could be in serious trouble trying to prove the negative. As a consequence, you do need to get the data and save the data. And remember this, though, is that even though there are no hits, uh, you get nothing, sometimes having no readings is probably more important than the occasional uh, sporadic trigger, and I think Barry can address that. Um, yes, and, and Russell makes a very good point. In fact, if you look at uh, the laws that OSHA puts out, uh, those medical records uh, become uh, legal binding documents uh, for years. Uh, you know, when you look at the industrial side, um, you know, we have to keep those for 30 years after the folks have gotten off their, the hazmat team. Um, so, you know, you want to make sure that you do a good job of documentation uh, because it is your safety uh, for that purpose. It's not only the safety of the others, but it's your safety that you're playing with. If you don't do keep all your records uh, and things, how do you know what you've been exposed to? And Russ makes an excellent point. Documentation of this is key because it serves a couple other important purposes. For example, you know, I think a lot of folks in the in the in the profession say probably don't feel very well when they leave a scene, and that's you know. They just, that's normally the way they feel. They expect to feel that way. Hey, they worked at a fire scene. They, were, may, they know there's probably some things that are, that are in the scene that may not be very good for them to, to be working in and around. But they just blow it off and they go home and they do this day in, day out until at some point, you know, maybe it catches up with them, maybe it doesn't. So if some, at some point in time they want to file a claim or they want to go back and try and show that based on the work that they did over a certain period of time, they were exposed to some hazards that caused some kind of medical condition at this point and be very simple to using a checklist or using some kind of document, whether it's an exposure form or whatever, you know, start keeping track of those scenes, especially those scenes where you know there were hazardous chemicals present and it, it can be very well and easily documented so that if you do have to come up with a document or show proof that, hey, I was at that scene, I worked it for this amount of time, here's the art part of the scene that I worked in, so that it might might be very very helpful down the road should that should that instance occur. That's what I like about the IAP. We used to call the 
the principal portion of that, the HAS, the Health and Safety Plan. But that's only one leg of this. But what are you doing as far as the clinics you choose prior to and the clinics you choose uh, on your annual basis? And then there's the other side, what about specialists? And I'd like to kind of throw that out because I believe that you take it a step further and you take it to pulmonology and urology. And those are two areas I think are extremely important. Any comments on that, Bobby? I think the health and screening practice is 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 critical. And I think there's a misunderstanding throughout the profession on, on the various roles that everyone plays. I think what you all have been kind of discussing a little bit is obviously the OSHA standards that are out there. And, and if a state is not an OSHA state, they have to have a, a plan that meets or exceeds that level. But but these plans lay out responsibilities of both the employer and the employee, and, and I think that gets lost in the wash somewhere. And how do we break down those barriers, Russ? You work with your employer on developing a form that you actually take to the clinic, the industrial clinic that's doing the medical surveillance, and you make sure that they are the blood tests. You make sure that they are the x-rays. And then you have uh, on the side, once a year, perhaps an examination by a urologist, and perhaps the x-rays uh, read and reviewed by someone in pulmonology. Because it's critical, those are the two primary areas that I see we have problems in our industry. This is Mike, and I think another good point to make, too, is that I worked on a project some years ago specifically on the OSHA standards and what employers were responsible for doing versus what employees were responsible for doing. And what I tell folks is, look, the best document you can get a hold of is not the regulation or standard itself, but most of the major OSHA standards, either federal or state, that impact fire investigators are going to have some what's called a compliance guide. And these compliance guides are what the compliance officers use, typically use to go out and do a workplace inspection. So it tells them, using a checklist format, the basic tenets of that regulation. And if they're going to go into a workplace to do that inspection, what are the key things they need to look for in terms of compliance and noncompliance? In almost all these documents, you can go in and it spells out what the employer is responsible for doing versus what the employee is responsible for doing. Well, And I think, as all three of you all have um stressed education. I think that's that's one of the reasons that that Barry uh you through DuPont Chemical Emergency Response Solutions came to the IAAI and and Russ Melton through the Institute of uh Forensic Investigators and we partnered to deliver the the Hazmat course uh hoping that we would bring some good foundational knowledge to the fire investigation community. And I know you just had the first Offering, do you think that's going to be a step in the right direction? Well, probably I can address that quickly. Is uh, we had a lot of comments. It's a very intensive week. One individual mentioned that, uh, and I quote him: "This past week was an investment in the longevity of my life, as it relates to safety and preserving my life and others, and how to approach events of this nature. It's just not another piece of paper to hang on the wall." Uh, I think uh, another one that is, the quote is, instructors worked well together and provided me information that will change the way I work fire scenes forever. I like that one. But I think that gives you an idea. Yes, it's a lot of work, and it's hard to get the education, the knowledge, but it's for your own safety and the safety of others. 
Well, I thank you all for participating today, and, and hopefully uh, we can continue to expand the knowledge and improve fire safety, uh, fire fire safety in the fire investigation field uh, because these risks are real and it can happen to you. And again, I thank you, you all for participating today. Thanks to all of our participants in this month's roundtable. For your family, your colleagues, and yourself, make taking care of your health a priority. Finally, a few notes from the IAAI. Just another reminder, next year's ATC is in Dover, Delaware at Dover Downs, April 22nd through the 27th. We'd also like you to keep checking in at the IAAI's website at www.firearson.com. There's information there about training around the country that's coming near you. That concludes this IAAI CFITrainer.net podcast. Don't forget to check out the links on this podcast page for more information on our roundtable topic. We'll see you again next month.